In your Bible, the book of Mark, chapter 1. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. And I began preaching a series of messages in Mark. I'm not going to do it every week, but uh, I'm going to keep coming back to it unless there's some special event or some special topic to speak on. The Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark is the action gospel, we call it, because it emphasizes what Christ did more than what Christ said. Mark was the first of the gospels written by a young man, John Mark, who we believe his family were friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, family friends of Christ. And he was very close. In fact, he was related to Simon Peter. So, Mark had a lot of knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write the gospel, the good news. Gospel means good news. The good news according to this man named Mark. Now, last week I spoke on this, so just I won't review it, but I want you to notice in verse number one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because my subject this morning is the ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll take some notes because I want you to see some characteristics of the ministry of Christ that ought to be the characteristics of every true minister of the gospel. And certainly he is the model for us in our preaching, our teaching, our ministry in our church. And so there's a lot here to learn that's relevant and applicable. In verse 1, I want you to notice it begins with a statement that declares Jesus to be the Son of God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I don't have time to give you the evidences for that or why I say that, but there are many. But today, what I want you to see is that right out of the gate, verse 1, this book declares that Jesus Christ is unique. He is the Son of God. Almighty God. Secondly, I want you to notice in verse number nine, we begin the reading here, and it tells us of his ministry. Verse, uh, before, I, but before I begin reading the passage, I want you to notice uh, his baptism here in verse number nine. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And we talked about that last Sunday night when I spoke from this same book, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to circle in your Bible every member of this church. I want you to know this. The word baptized there is it's from a Greek word that was never really translated. It was transliterated, means it, meaning it was just brought over into the language. And the word baptized, uh, was a Greek word, baptizo, baptizo, or baptized. It simply meant to immerse. There is nothing in the world of Christianity that's been more controversial than that word, baptizo, or baptism. And yet, it's very simple. It's just simply to immerse, to put under water, to dip, to plunge. I want you to notice, it must be pretty important, because Jesus Christ was baptized of this fellow, John. I always have to rub it in on my other friends and say, 
Jesus walked 60 miles to be baptized by a Baptist preacher. Now, some of my friends in other denominations, they don't think that's very funny, but we're Baptists here today, so Jesus walked 60 miles to be baptized by a Baptist preacher. I don't want you to forget that today. And he plunged him under the water. Now, some people think it doesn't take that much to baptize you. They have a little glass up here on the pulpit to baptize with, and I'm not making fun of them, but tell me how it could mean anything else when it says that Jesus was baptized and when he was coming up out of the water. Verse 10, you see that? Now, if you come up out of the water, you had to go down into the water. It's hard to do with a glass. And so I want you to see, it was immersion. He walked out into a river. He was plunged under the water, buried in the likeness of his death. We are today. And he was brought up out of that water, Jesus baptized by John. Now, read with me the passage for today. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was immersed of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit of God like a dove descending upon him. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we have all three members of the Trinity mentioned here. Jesus the Son in the water. The Spirit of God, verse 10, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and then the voice of Almighty God, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, see, it's the action gospel. Immediately, Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. Now, Matthew gives a half a chapter to his to his temptation, and Luke gives quite a lot, but, uh, but uh, Mark just passes by. He was tempted of Satan. He was there with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. And now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel." And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway, there's another one of those words, see, in verse, uh, we, I, I refer to immediately in verse 12, in verse 18, straightway, immediately, quickly, action. And now again in verse 20, straightway, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants, and they went after him. I want you to notice three things with me today, the characteristics of the preaching of Jesus Christ. Number two, the call of his apostles. And thirdly, the call or the challenge to those of us living here in the 21st century. Number one, the characteristics of Jesus' preaching. Will you look again in your Bible? And verse number 14, it said, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, 
Repent ye and believe the gospel. If I could summarize the characteristics of the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, if, if someone asked me to do it, I'd turn them to this passage right here. Take your pen, if you will, and underscore there in your Bible that phrase, repent and believe the gospel. That was the preaching that characterized the ministry of Jesus Christ. Look, I want to point out three words there, and I want you to really grasp these, the concept behind these words. The first is repent. As I've told you many times, repent means to change your mind. But it doesn't mean to just change your mind in sort of a cursory and perfunctory way. It means a deep change of mind, a change of mind that is so profound that it causes you to walk then in a different direction. A change of mind that affects your life and your lifestyle. I'm walking this way and I repent, I turn, I change directions. It means to change my mind about sin. Repent means to change my mind about the Savior. Repent means to change my mind about the plan of salvation. What is it? To repent means to change my mind about myself. We live in a time when people have this idea of I'm okay and you're okay. And boy, we emphasize self-esteem and self-image and concepts like that. But when a person meets Jesus Christ, listen to me, very important. When a person meets the Lord Jesus Christ, and at a deep spiritual level, the Holy Spirit deals with your heart, and you begin to understand truly the plan of salvation, it requires you to change your mind about yourself. And you'll go from, I'm okay I'm all right. I'm as good as the folks over there. You will move from that position to, oh me, I have sinned against God. And as a consequence, I'm lost. I'm helpless to do anything about my condition. I cannot save myself. I cannot lift myself by my own bootstraps. I need someone to do for me what I cannot do for myself. A change of mind about my sin, my condition, myself, and most of all, a change of mind about the Savior, that He is the only one who is able to save me. He is the only one who can help me and meet the needs that I have in my spiritual life. There's a danger in the Bible Belt where we live, that people have heard the gospel so much that they take it for granted. And they just have this superficial idea of, well, yeah, I heard about Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting and all that. And yeah, I guess I believe that stuff. <clears throat> but they don't believe it at a level that it ever makes any real profound difference in their life. Charles Spurgeon was trying to make the point about repentance Spurgeon preached back in England 150 years ago. He's acknowledged as the greatest preacher, perhaps, of modern times, maybe of all time, since Bible days. And Spurgeon said these words, and I quote from one of his sermons, listen to the passion, listen to what he was saying, and, and, and hear this. Spurgeon said to his audience, are you too delicate to tell the man that he is ill? 
Do you hope to heal the sick without their knowing it? You therefore flatter them. And what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves, and at last they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poison to them. Shall we keep man in a fool's or keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumber from which they will awake in hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, we will not repent. You can feel his heart there. You can feel the passion in that message. That we cannot flatter people. We cannot smooth it over. Salvation requires a change of mind that is profound, that I turn from all self-effort and I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only solution for my soul's salvation. Repent. I call your attention to the word gospel there. As I've already told you, it's good news. Good news. The good news, the gospel is good news. Now, go back there, if you will, to verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What I want you to notice is the gospel is of Jesus Christ. Here's where we miss it today. We miss it in contemporary Christianity because we think the gospel has something to do with us. Now, listen carefully. Get this. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It is nothing about you. It is nothing about me. The gospel is not a feeling. Some people may weep when they hear to others, cold as a stone. It's not about how you feel. The gospel is a set of facts. And facts don't change, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about Jesus, none about us, and it's a set of facts. And I want to show you where the Bible so clearly delineates it. Some of you already know this, but some won't. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn with me quickly in your Bible. And I want you to see the most positive strong declaration of, of, of the gospel that you'll find anywhere. And when you walk out of here today, I want there to be no doubt in anybody's mind about what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. And in verse 1, he says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and now you stand in this gospel. Now, he's going to tell us what the gospel is. I declare to you the gospel. And I'm going to skip for the sake of time here down to verse 3. I delivered into you the gospel. First of all, point one, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. Now, think with me. What is the first fact in the gospel. The first fact of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. He didn't die for his sin. He died as a substitute. He took my place and your place. He died for our sins. That's a fact. That won't change. That can be documented in very many ways with evidence. Secondly, I want to show you something else about it. 
If you'll continue reading, it says that he was buried in verse 4. And why is the burial of Christ essential to the gospel? Because the burial of Christ was proof that he died. He was in the ground. He was in a tomb for three days. Evidence. So that scoffers wouldn't say he just was badly injured and he revived. No, he was in the tomb for three days, shut away. A man who had been hurt like him on the cross, even if he was alive when they took him down. Do you think he would have survived three more days and locked up in a tomb? And then notice the third fact of the gospel. He arose again the third day according to the scriptures. And there were witnesses to that. Cephas, Peter then all of the 12. Then 500 different people saw him at one time, and other people saw him, and I won't go into that, but I want you to get it. The gospel is a body of fact. Christ died. He was buried in the ground for three days, and he rose from the dead. Now, that's the gospel. That's the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with the way I feel. It has nothing to do with how good or bad I may be. It is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get it all confused. It's so simple, and still we confuse it because Satan wants to confuse us about it. You see, I had an old preacher, Dr. Lakin, used to come here. He said, Bill, you're a young kid preacher starting out, and I'm going to help you learn the gospel because a lot of preachers preach, and they don't even know the gospel clearly. And he talked to me, and I've told you about it, and he gave me books and pointed me to preachers who were great gospel preachers, and I tried hard to learn the gospel. One day, Lakin shot me. He said, Bill, do you know that Jesus loves me is not the gospel? I'll let that soak in because some of you, first thing you want to tell people is that Jesus loves you. Well, you're trying to give them a medicine that they don't feel like they need. First part of the gospel is that we, first thing that we need to learn is repent, right? We got to get the patient sick before they want the cure. So he said, Jesus loves me is not a part of the gospel. I said, well, doc, it is. I've heard that all my life. He said, I know you have, but it's not the gospel. The gospel's a set of facts. It's true that Jesus loves you. It's true that God loves you. It is true, but that was the motivation for Jesus coming. It's not the gospel. The gospel is he died in my place on the cross. He was buried in the ground for three days, and on the third day, he came up out of the ground, and the Bible emphasizes that as being good news. It's not just good news. It's the best news, isn't it? It is the best news. The gospel, Christ died for our sins. Now, the implications of that touch every part of the Christian gospel. So when you read your Bible, you're going to see the gospel on virtually every page in some manifestation. Don't think there's just three simple facts. Those implications travel very, very far. And the third word I want you to notice, though, there, Jesus' message was repent and believe the gospel. I want you to notice the word believe. It means to have faith. To believe means to depend upon, to rely upon. I like the amplified uh, translation because it, it expands those verbs. And you read there in the Gospel of John, the, John 3, 16. And in the word believe, you come to it and it says to depend on, 
What does it mean when we tell people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved? It means to depend on the Lord Jesus Christ, to rely upon him, to depend upon him, to commit yourself to him, to have a conviction in your soul, a strong, powerful belief that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is and that he can save you. It means to trust. To believe means to trust. All those words are synonymous. Somebody comes to me, and often they do. Pastor, I'm just worried. I don't know if I have enough faith. I don't think I have faith. And I say to them, oh, you have plenty of faith. I never met a person who didn't have faith. You never met anybody without faith? No, I haven't. We all have faith. You ever go to the post office and drop a letter in there? That's faith. <laughs> Big time faith. Some guy's going to get it that don't want to be there. And he's going to hand it to somebody else who doesn't want to be there. And they're going to put it on a plane and a big pile of letters, and it's going to go somewhere across the country. And yet you believe it will ultimately and eventually end up at its proper destination, faith. You ever cross a bridge? I remember the first time I went across the new bridge down in Charleston over the Cooper River. And I looked down, 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 down. And I said, this thing was built by the lowest bidder. And it's 500 feet down to that water. And I didn't even think about it before I got on this thing. Faith. I have faith to cross a bridge, mail a letter. I go to my doctor's office. And this nurse comes in there, and she's got a needle in her arm, in her hand, about that long. She says, roll up your sleeve, Reverend. I don't stop. You know, it, it dawned on me one day, what has she got in that thing? I don't know where she got that. I don't know her. Is she reliable? Is she trustworthy? And she comes at me with that big needle with this look of joy on her face and, <laughs> and pumps that into me. I don't know who she is. I don't know where she got that stuff. I don't know if it's going to do what it's supposed to do, but I have faith. I have faith. I get on the airplane, flown by a guy I don't know. Built by the lowest bidder. Going to where I hope he knows where we're going. Faith. I didn't, before I got the ticket, I didn't ask for an explanation of all that. I purchased that faith. I trusted the airline to that degree at least. You get my point. We have a lot of faith and we exercise it all the time without thinking. And when it comes to Jesus, well, I don't know. I want to tell you the life of Jesus Christ has been studied more than the life of any human being who ever lived on this planet. I'm going to tell you today, if there were a flaw in his life, somebody would have found it in 21 centuries. I'm going to tell you today, you have more evidence to believe in Jesus Christ than you do to cross the Cooper River Bridge. Faith. Believe. Repent. Believe. That set of facts that can make a change in people's lives when they understand the implications of those facts. You say, well, what about works? They have nothing to do with it. They're not even mentioned. Jesus didn't say, repent and believe the gospel and live a certain... No, he didn't say that. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the characteristic of the message of Jesus Christ. Will you live a godly life? Sure, if you really, truly are saved, 
of course, but the works don't have anything to do with your salvation. They are an indicator, an indicator that you truly have come to know the Savior. The characteristics of his preaching, number two, the call of his apostles. Look in verse 20, or 16 through 20. He walked by the Sea of Galilee, saw Simon, or Peter, and Andrew, two brothers. And they were fishing, casting a net. They were fishers, professional fishermen. Jesus said to them, come after me, call them. And then if you know, notice in verse 19, two other brothers, two sets of brothers he called that day, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. They were also professional fishermen mending their nets. He called them to follow him. I want you to notice that Jesus calls common people. He calls common people, fishermen. He didn't go call kings and diplomats. He didn't call the intelligentsia. He called working people. Moses a shepherd. Gideon, threshing wheat. The apostles, fishermen. Matthew, a tax collector. On and on and on it goes. Plain, ordinary people are the people that God calls to do his work. By the way, this was not his first meeting with them. If you'll read John chapter 1, which we don't have time for this morning, but you'll find out that they had already met him and they got to know him and, and had had conversations with him. And through a process of time, they came to believe, to deep trust in Jesus Christ. So when he comes by today, he says, come on and follow me. And they left their nets. They left their work, if you will, and they followed him. Look in verse 18. There's a phrase I really want you to get hold of there. Mark 1 and 18. Straightway they forsook their nets. That means they left their jobs. Talk about a high level of trust and commitment. These men dropped the fishing business and began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ that day. They didn't put it off, procrastinate. They made a total commitment to him when he called them. He calls common people. Notice something else. He calls common people to a common task. He calls common people to a common task. What is the task here? He said to them, verse 17, come after me. I will make you to become fishers of men. Fishers of men, that's the common task. He calls common people, he calls common people to a common task. We all have the same task. I'm a preacher. My task is to fish for men. Glenn Benfield back there is a missionary. His task, fish for men. You're a layman. You do some other profession, vocation. You make your living in some other way. But your task as a Christian still is to fish for men. He calls common people, and he gives them all the same task, every one of us, to be fishers of men. This was the priority of Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, what did he say? The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Let me tell you why we're in the shape we're in in America, among other things. There are many reasons, but from a spiritual standpoint, we have forgotten to fish for men in America. We have turned inward in our churches, and we've forgotten that we all have the same mandate and the same task. It is to catch 
fish, catch the souls of men, if you will. And that's a process. It's not a one step does it all. Because we watch in the New Testament, we see people we see people coming to faith in Christ, and some come the first time they hear the gospel. Others have to be convinced over a period of time. They have to see the evidence and understand a little bit more. But I know this in that process of two, two steps. First, there's got to be a consciousness. Every person that you meet this week, now I want you to remember this, ladies and gentlemen, when you go outside these doors, everybody you meet, rich or poor, old or young, every race, every level of society, when you go out that door, know this, every single person that you encounter is a soul for whom Christ died on a journey to eternity. We've got to get, grasp this idea of a soul consciousness that we are aware. We're just not talking to people. We're talking to people who inside them is a soul, an ever-living, never-dying, ageless, dateless, timeless, a soul for whom Christ died and paid the price. And this soul will be alive a million years from now in eternity. And that person will live forever in heaven or in hell, the Bible teaches. And we can't blow that off and say that's the missionary's job, that's the preacher's job, that's the Sunday school teacher's job. No, every one of us are tasked with this important thing, to be fishers of men. And secondly, to have a conviction that every person deserves a fair hearing of the gospel of Christ. Every person deserves to hear the gospel in a way that they can understand it. A soul consciousness and a conviction. I must share with that person whose soul will live forever. I must share with them this wonderful, life-changing, precious message about Jesus Christ. The only way that we're going to catch fish consistently here at the Baptist Temple is for the pastor to lead the way, the staff to fall in behind him, then the deacons, and then the Sunday school teachers, and then across the broad swath of the congregation, all the lay people, that everybody here understand it's not the preacher's job to catch the fish. It's our job to fish. Every single one of us. And we develop that consciousness. Everybody that I know and see and meet and encounter and engage with in life, every one of them are going to spend eternity somewhere. They're a soul. And number two, they deserve a fair hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They deserve that. He called common people. He called them to a common task. And he called them with common instructions. Common people to a common task with common instructions. They all had the same instructions. What were his instructions? Look with me, if you will, there again to the book of Mark, chapter number 1, verse 17. Come after me. Come after me. In another place it says, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Follow me. Come after me. I'll make you to become something that you're not right now. You know, I like what old country preacher one time said. If you ain't fishing, you ain't following. 
If you ain't fishing, you ain't following. You see, we've put in our own man-made substitutes, I fear, today in our world. We thought, oh, if I sing in the choir, if I get involved in service in the church, if I teach Sunday school, well, I don't need to be a fisher of men. That's, somebody else will do that. No. Common task, common instructions. Follow me, and if you follow me, I will make you to become. You'll grow. You'll develop. And when you do, you'll be able to catch those fish. When he said become there, mark that word, he implied that there is a process of spiritual growth. As we follow him, we're going to become more successful and better at the fishing, if you will. We have a goal this year, and I've announced it and preached it and talked about it and referenced it, I guess, in almost every service. And my goal for you this year is this, that every member be a growing member. You know what my goal is? My goal is that everybody here become, become. That word become implies a process. It implies spiritual growth. Every member, a growing member. Now, if you're listening closely as I preach to you, every message I've preached this year, like this one, no exception, I'm trying to instruct and inspire and encourage you to grow as a Christian. God forbid that 365 golden precious days would ensue this year. We would mark them off the calendar and come to 2015 and we're right where we were spiritually. No, no, no. In fact, we probably won't be because if we're not growing, we'll probably be backing up. My challenge is every, Christ, every member of this church, a growing Christian in 2014, following the Lord and becoming something that we're not now, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says. So we have the characteristics of Jesus' preaching, repent and believe the gospel. The call of his disciples, he called common people to a common task upon common instructions. Now, lastly and thirdly, the call or challenge to those of us living today. Let me ask you a question. Look up here now. Has the call changed in the 2,100 years since the Lord Jesus Christ gave it to those first disciples? Hadn't changed. Has he modified it or rescinded it? No. Still the same instructions. Follow me. I will make you to become. You'll grow and develop mature. And the ultimate goal, I want you to be fishers of men. I want you to catch souls, if you will. It hasn't changed. Calls the same for me as it was for the Apostle Paul or the preachers that have been in the line since. Dr. W.A. Criswell, who I so greatly admire from First Baptist Church, Dallas, dead now and with the Lord, but for 50 years, the pastor there, he had a way of saying this, warning and exhorting and reproving his congregation and keeping them alive evangelistically, keeping them fishing for men. Criswell used to say, the Lord said we are to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. 
Boy, what a powerful metaphor. Fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. I think of the church as being the aquarium, if you will. And we're to be focused outward on the lost people. This is a message that I bring to you on behalf of those that are not here. They're not here. They were out there last night, but they're lost and they're hopeless. Some know they're lost. Some don't know they're lost, but they're lost. They're not here. They're not in the church. And we're to be concerned about them. That's why missions is such an important area of our church's ministry. And that's why I preach like this to exhort and inspire and encourage you to be fishers of men and not just to turn inward and be keepers of the aquarium. Our church has always been evangelistically focused. I mean, look over there. What do you think that lighthouse is there for all these years? It's corny. I've had people come in here and laugh. Well, they got that stupid old lighthouse up there because it means something. It means this church is focused on sending out the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Corny or not corny, it's there and it will stay there because that's the mission. That is the mission. And when we forget that, when we forget to be the light and we're just here for each other, man, we've lost something that's vital, ladies and gentlemen. Fishers of men. Fishers of men. As churches age, and we've been here now, what, 44 years. As churches age, the tendency is for us to turn inward and to not do the things that built the church. Do you know why this church is here? It's been that lighthouse. It's gone out. It's shared the gospel in every way that it could. But as churches age, they turn inward, and they lose focus on the mission. We substitute running programs of various kinds, good programs, sports, RU, TV programs, Sunday schools, all of that stuff. We run programs, but we don't reach people. We focus on the members and the ministry rather than the mission and the souls of the lost who are out there crying in darkness this morning. And we've been blessed. But let me tell you, success has a downside to it. Success can turn into self-satisfaction. Success can turn into pride. Back in the 70s, the Dallas Cowboys under Tom Landry were the perennial champions, they won the Super Bowl three or four years in a row, I guess, or played in it at least. The next year, they had a devastating year. They lost. They just got beat up everywhere they went. And someone said to Tom Landry, what happened to your Cowboys this year, coach? He said, just one thing. They already have too many Super Bowl rings. They're no longer hungry. I saw that in the last Super Bowl. Here are the vaunted Denver Cowboys, Broncos, whatever they are. Denver Broncos, and their vaunted quarterback. He's the best. He is a Hall of Fame shoe-in. They're going to win this. They're polished. They're sophisticated. They are experienced. They have all the number one drafts, and the Seattle Seahawks, Average draft choice there, number five or six. Bunch of no names. Nobody knows who they are. 
They came out on the field and won the game in the first play. Did you see that? It was over. Why? They were hungry. They knew what the mission was. Kill a Bronco. And they went to carry it out, and they did. I mean, it was, the game was over. I got home after church, and I thought, well, I'll watch the next three quarters. And after about 10 minutes, I said, this game is over. I'm going to go and do something productive. Less talent, but more desire, more passion, more fire, more drive, more adherence to the mission. And churches die. Why do they die? Self-satisfied. Have too many Super Bowl rings. We've been here before. That's not the basis of what we do what we do. We do it because our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, stood one day, and he said, listen, disciples, to whom much is given, much will be required. Florence Baptist Temple, to whom much is given, all of that we have, but your responsibility is greater. Much will be required. Paul, writing to a young preacher, Timothy, said, preach the Word. That's number one. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. Every preacher ought to be an evangelist. Every preacher ought to be a soul winner. Every preacher ought to be a fisher for men. But second, so should every Christian. I call you to become fishers of men. The preaching of Jesus Christ was evangelistic preaching. It was preaching that focused on bringing the lost to Him. And that's still the mission. And our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.